morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text is on the back side of the bulletin. You can flip it over. I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. This is God's holy word written down for our instruction. So let us read with open ears and open hearts. Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead of the way to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. There's a wonderful passage for us to look at, and it's a return to familiar material. As we look at Jesus setting captives free on the Sabbath, um, it takes place over four points. The story has four movements. There's Jesus, and he heals. He sees and heals the woman with a disabling spirit. We have the synagogue ruler's response. Jesus rebuked to him. And then the outcome, the division in the synagogue. So let's dive in, looking at the first point. Jesus heals a woman with a disabling spirit. And Luke introduces to us something which is both familiar, but it's been a long time since it happened. If you can remember a year or more back in our time in Luke, we were in chapter 4. And if you'll turn there briefly, I'll show you what I mean. This is the fourth of four accounts in Luke's gospel of Jesus' teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. So it's the final one. And all the others are found in chapters 4 through 6. Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's what characterized his Galilean ministry. In chapter 4, Jesus went out to the wilderness, was tempted by the devil. And verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And then immediately we get an encounter of one such occurrence and he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And that was Jesus' sort of coming out party, revealing who he is. I am the Messiah, as he quotes Isaiah 61. I am the one, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And the word Messiah means anointed, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they, they liked that initially, but as he made it clear, I mean you 
are spiritually poor. I mean you are captives to sin. I mean you are an equal playing field with Gentile lepers and Gentile widows. His hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. Then we get another account of him in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching there on the Sabbath. And his word had power and authority, and he cast a demon out of a man, and the people marveled. And then chapter 4 closes again, reemphasizing this was Jesus' pattern. This was what he did. As he went to a desolate place to pray in verse 42, the people came and sought to keep him from leaving. He said in 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to others towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he is preaching in the synagogues in Judea. So chapter 4 really characterizes this ministry of Jesus. This is what he spent a lot of his time doing in Galilee, was teaching in the synagogues, and we get insights in particular to Sabbath day teachings. Back turn to chapter 6, verse 1. We have two other Sabbath controversies. On the Sabbath, he's going through the field. His disciples take the grain. The Pharisees are indignant. And Jesus responds that David ate the showbread and he's Lord of the Sabbath. And then verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there, his right hand was withered. And they were looking for an opportunity to accuse them. But really since then, we haven't seen Jesus teaching in synagogues on the Sabbath. In fact, the the last big turn in our narrative occurred, if you go back to chapter 9, Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and this became a pivotal, pivotal, not pivotal, pivotal moment in his ministry because Elijah and Moses come down and they speak with him in verse 31. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to him of his departure and literally, my ESV has a footnote, his exodus that he was about to um, accomplish in Jerusalem. And from this point on, the cross in Jesus' mind and in the reader's mind, becomes central. And we saw that as he came down, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so we identified that 951 is a big division in Luke's narrative. Jesus has been teaching. He's been presenting his messianic credentials. He's been traveling around Judea. But now... He's on mission. He spoke to Elijah. He spoke to Moses. God the Father encouraged him. He came down from the mountain. He has set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. And now we get the journey narrative. So it is odd that on this journey to Jerusalem, Luke brings us back to those familiar things. And it raises the question, why? And we'll be back on this soon. If you look at chapter 13, you go back to chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Verse 22 of chapter 13, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. It's not as though Luke has forgotten where he's headed, but now what we learn is that as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and and if we try to reconstruct his route, it's kind of a roundabout way. It takes, looks like it takes about a year. In fact, if the Galileans in chapter 13, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, if that occurred at the Passover, which seems most likely, um, for Galileans to go to Jerusalem would likely be one of the three feasts they'd have to travel to Jerusalem for, and only one of those feasts involves people um, participating in the sacrificial system. That's the Passover, then really what we're dealing with is a year's journey to Jerusalem, a roundabout journey. But what Luke does here 
is he reintroduces these old themes. Jesus is now in a, sa- in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, if you remember, the, the synagogues were houses of instruction. The sacrificial system didn't take place there. They, they rose up in the intertestamental period, in the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what would happen is just what every community would have a house of instruction, because before Gutenberg, a community might have a copy of the Torah, maybe. And so if they did, they'd, they'd want to house it somewhere special, and they would gather there regularly to hear it read. We saw that in chapter 4. The scroll was opened, handed to Jesus. He read the Torah. He read Isaiah 61. So that's what these are. They're good things. They're places where the Bible is taught. In that sense, similar to what we're doing here. And Jesus goes to there on a Sabbath, and he's teaching. So why does Luke include this? What's the significance? Well, I think there's a couple things. One... We just ended last week with Jesus warning them that Israel was like a vine that had been planted, and for three years, the owner of the vine had been looking for fruit, and they had borne none. The owner wanted to cut the vine down, but the vine dresser pleaded with them, saying, give them one more year, give them one more year, extra special attention, digging around, putting fertilizer down, and see if it bears fruit. And I think one of the things that's happening here is we are checking in. Jesus is checking in. Has Israel and its leaders learned anything in the last three years? We're repeating Sabbath controversies. We're repeating settings. And one of the, is, is there going to be a different response? Have they been picking up what he's been putting down? Have they been learning and repenting and changing their attitudes? Or is the vine still barren? The other thing we see is that even as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, he is still continuing his activity. Remember at the end of chapter 4 when they wanted him to stay, he said, no, I've been sent to proclaim the kingdom to all the towns. And he did that primarily by going to the houses of instruction, the synagogues and teaching. Even as Jesus is heading to the cross, even as that is on his mind, he's focused, he's determined, he's still planting and scattering God's seed. He's still teaching and even as in the last two or three weeks we've seen calls to decision and announcements of judgment, he is still preaching the kingdom. He is still offering the good news. He's still proclaiming liberty to the captives. So even if the camera lens that we're looking at has been focusing on the increasing escalation with the Pharisees and his pronouncements of judgment, we ought not to think that that excludes his regular ministry of announcing the kingdom, announcing pardon, announcing freedom. So I think that's that's all that's tied up in this. As well as we'll see here, we see God's kingdom itself advancing because Luke tells us that this woman's disability is satanic. She's been bound by Satan. And so the kingdom of God here, again, will triumph over the kingdom of Satan. All that's bound up in Jesus' teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Will the tree bear fruit? Will there be any different sort of response? He's taught on this. He's been challenged on this. We'll see. Secondly, he sees the woman with compassion. And and Luke introduces her surprisingly. Look at verse 11. And behold, there's a woman who'd had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. 
Now this woman, um, we know very little about her, and I think that's part of the point. This is not a woman of faith. This is not a woman of virtue. This is not a woman of unbelief or of sin. We just simply don't know. What we do know is she's an object of pity. We further know from what we saw last week that she would have likely been an outcast or a pariah. Not, not necessarily an outcast, but, but someone at the very least um, who is invisible in the society. She's a woman, and she's been hunched over, unable to stand up, meet people in the eye. And we know from chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, that the Jews had a tendency to think, if bad things happen to you, it's your fault. Remember, Jesus said, don't suppose those Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed were worse sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem. Don't suppose those people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell were worse offenders. They weren't. Even Jesus' disciples in John, when they see the man born blind, who sinned, teacher, his parents or him? Somebody did something wrong, and that's why this person's in this state. Well, here this woman, 18 years. Man, she must have really messed up. We don't know what she did, but just like Job's friends, we'd be pretty convinced, they'd be pretty convinced she did something. Besides, why is the woman in the synagogue, what does she need to learn the Torah for? We have to see from Paul that Paul has to insist, no, let a woman learn. Because that wasn't customary. So she's slightly out of place. And let's just face it, when we see people with disabilities, when we see people who aren't like us, it makes us uncomfortable. I think this woman would have been invisible at best in the synagogue. And she's there. And and the construction of the Greek is wonderful. Literally, it's Jesus seeing her called her to him. I mean, it's his immediate response. It's almost spontaneous not planned out. Jesus sees her. Behold, he sees the one to whom maybe the rest of the people there wouldn't have seen. And in seeing her, his immediate response, come come over here. And and understand that because he's teaching in the synagogue, he's calling her front and center. It'd be like me calling someone up here on the platform. This woman who is probably ashamed of her condition, used to being ignored, is now the spotlight is on her. The teacher in the synagogue calls her over. And she comes. He sees her with compassion. And point C, he releases her from her infirmity. Now I want you to note how Jesus does this. He called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Literally, you are loosed from your disability or released. And the verb tense is such, it's the perfect verb tense for my students in my Greek class, that what is clear is that this is a permanent State of affairs. What Jesus announces isn't just some temporary relief from the demon. We, we, we knew that the man in, uh, by the Gerizines, the demoniac by the Gerizines, the demon would come upon him and he'd leave and he'd come upon him. This isn't some temporary relapse. This isn't some temporary relief. I want you to notice that, that Jesus heals her um, and she stays healed. And notice how he heals her. He doesn't cast the spell He doesn't perform the rite or invoke the ritual. Jesus speaks, and it is so. This is the one who is the word of God. He heals her by the power of his word. Another thing I think is interesting is this. We've seen the the, the encounters with demons. Probably the most um, protracted in Luke is where he encounters the man by the Gerizines in the graveyard who had legion here, the demon is just incidental. He doesn't even address the demon. You're healed. Even though it's Satan himself who's bound her, it's just a non-issue. 
Complete non-issue. Total dominance and power of Jesus over the demonic, demonic realm. He heals her with the power of his word. He lays his hands and he touches her. Which again, and part of what I think we're seeing here is Jesus taking this woman who would be an outcast, who would be ashamed, who would be on the margins, a pariah. He's treating with compassion. He's bringing her center. He's touching, I mean, a, a male Jew touching a woman, I mean, that, that's probably bad taste right there. He's compassionate. He shows kindness to her. And he heals her immediately and permanently. Immediately and permanently. She has been loosed and she will continue to be loosed. That's, that's the uh, force behind the Greek verb. Um, unlike so many of today's charlatans and, and those who claim miracles, this is verifiable. It is immediate and it's dur- durable. It, it endures. There we go. I'm making up all sorts of words this morning. Um, and this is, just, this is just standard operating procedures for Jesus. I think that's one of the reasons why Luke doesn't give us a whole lot more details. By this point in the narrative, we understand he's the one with this power. We understand he's the one with this compassionate heart. We understand it's going to be a non-issue. We don't need to know about whether there's a struggle with the demon, because of course Jesus and his word will win. Now Luke gives us this encounter to show our Lord's compassion and love for the lowly. Remember, who has Jesus come to minister to, according to Isaiah 61? And and I'm going to go back there a lot in this message because of how similarly this encounter rings with chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to claim liberty to the captives the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This woman is poor. This woman is oppressed. This woman is a nobody. Jesus calls her in front of the synagogue. He treats her with kindness and dignity. He touches her, lays his hand on her. He heals her. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. And understand that just as Jesus is able to pronounce strong and harsh judgments and condemnations and warn people of the wrath to come, he is full of love and mercy. He is tender and kind of heart, especially as we see in contrast with the synagogue ruler. Now, the synagogue ruler is not a biblical category of authority, but it stands to reason if a community has a building set aside for the teaching of the law, if the scroll, the Torah, is kept there, then somebody needs to be in charge of the place. And so it's not surprising there was a synagogue ruler, not necessarily a Pharisee, not necessarily a scribe. He's simply the man in charge of the synagogue. It's his job to enforce order and to make sure that the Mosaic law is kept So how does he respond? Will will he, as a representative of Israel, bear fruit? Will the vine now have learned their lesson? Yes, we were confused about the Sabbath before Jesus. Yes, we tripped up on on your disciples taking grain from the the stalks, and we, we were confused about you healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, but we heard you, we've learned from you, and now we understand this is wonderful. I mean, a notable miracle has happened in the middle of the worship service. I mean, just imagine that. If if partway through the service, um, I called someone up here, and God healed them immediately, visibly. And that's another reason why this woman's duration of her illness, for 18 years, she's going to be known to have this condition. Publicly known. There can be no doubt that she has been healed. Oh, and I missed the last point there. And she is made straight 
and she praises God. So her condition is radically transformed, both physically and spiritually. She, she goes from being hunched over to being made straight, and immediately she's praising God. Now, we don't know how much she understands, but she does know this. God has done something wonderful for her. We don't know if she believes Jesus is the Messiah. We don't know what she thinks about that. But this is the common response to Jesus' miracles. That she sees firsthand the wonder, the beauty, the goodness of this, and she's extolling God for his goodness. She's glorifying God. Will the synagogue leader fall suit? Will he likewise say, this, this is amazing? This woman, this poor woman that we've all been praying for for 18 years, finally God has released her. Isn't this wonderful is that how he responds? No. The tree, at least at this point, continues to bear no fruit. He has learned nothing from Jesus' teaching. And we see that he exemplifies the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. The sickness runs deep. He responds, point A, with indignation. Indignation. He's indignant. God works a mighty miracle, this man is indignant. Didn't follow the rules, wasn't scheduled for that day. Come on another day. Let's try to understand why he's indignant, okay? Because Luke tells us, we get an insight into his thinking. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, what, what is the Sabbath law prescribed? Let's see if this guy is a textual case, perhaps, it's understandable how he might be indignant. Let's just take a look. And if you read Deuteronomy 5, I'll read it for you. Here's the Sabbath commandment from the Decalogue. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. That your male servants and female servants may rest as well as you. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. Don't work. Don't work. What, what has Jesus done this work? Was it the speaking? Maybe it was the woman standing up straight. That must have been really difficult for her. Well, you see, what we learn is that the scribes and the Pharisees had added to God's law all sorts of clarifications, because the Sabbath command carried with it a death penalty. In fact, immediately after it was given, in Exodus 20, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and they stoned him to death. So on the one hand, the punishment and the enforcement of the Sabbath is serious. God wasn't messing around. God wasn't, this wasn't a suggestion. He meant it. You better not break it. If you do, you don't get a warning. You don't get a ticket. You get dead. This is serious business. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees figure because the stakes are so high, who's to say what work is? I mean, how many sticks do you get to pick up before you're working? And so they solved the problem and gave people their answers. Rather than simply saying, fear God, use your best wisdom, don't work, you should be able to figure that out, they would tell you what work is. We learn in, in John's gospel, they'd figured out just how far you could walk on a Sabbath without working. So Jesus stayed a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. You can, this many steps, no more. And we learn from extra biblical material that, that you could carry something under your arm. If it was light enough to carry under your arm, that wasn't work. If it was on your shoulder, that was work. Remember the guy who got healed, he picked up his mat, threw it on his shoulder. <gasps> Sabbath breaking. 
And you could carry things around inside your house, but not outside of your house. And, and they had hundreds of rules to clarify what Sabbath breaking was. And I, I would be very shocked to find out that they had rules concerning miracle working, but this, this synagogue ruler concludes Jesus has done work and he's broken the Sabbath. He's indignant. Sabbath is violated. Who cares that this poor woman has been healed? Who cares that a mighty miracle has been done? Who cares that she's not praising God? Our traditions have been broken. See, what we learn, point one here, is he cares more for the traditions of men than for the mercy and power of God. And this really gets at the heart, I think, of false religion and legalism. A greater concern for our rules, not, not God's rules. It would be one thing if Jesus had clearly broken the Sabbath. He hasn't. But he's broken their interpretation of the Sabbath and the rules they came up with. And he's more concerned about that. I mean, even if someone did something odd, something that, that, that messed with our traditions. I mean, we have traditions that aren't laws, the way we order our service, things like that. And somebody showed up here and they messed with the order. And I know we've scheduled the service this way. But, and then the mighty miracle was done. I'd like to think as much as you know, Pastor Daniel might be like, well, there goes the order of service. We'd be praising God that a miracle was done, that someone was healed. None of that here. None of that here. He cares more for the traditions of men than for the mercy and power of God. And we see that he opposes Jesus' message and work. He opposes Jesus' message and work. I don't know where I get that from. Look down at verse 17. This man and the others like him are identified as his adversaries. His adversaries. This man is opposed to Jesus and his work. And so what he does then is he sort of corrects Jesus in a roundabout way. Again, a literal reading is he answered, so he's responding to what Jesus did. Answering, he said to the people. He doesn't quite have enough chutzpah to take Jesus head on. Maybe he'd heard about how Jesus had silenced his adversaries back in chapter 6. Remember, the man with withered hand? And Jesus stops. He's teaching again in the synagogue. And he said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, just waiting, anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No one says anything. He said to the man, your hand is restored. Stretch out your hand. Maybe he'd heard about that. Maybe, maybe that's why he doesn't take Jesus directly. But make no mistake, he is correcting Jesus. He's rebuking the people. But this is clearly Jesus' doing. This woman didn't come to him asking to be healed. Jesus initiated the encounter. Jesus called her forward. Jesus put her in front of everyone. Jesus touched her with his hands. Jesus healed her. This is, this is sort of misdirection. He's rebuking the people because he doesn't quite want to deal with this guy who just worked a miracle. And notice he doesn't try to deny the miracle. That's another thing. None of Jesus' opponents ever try to discredit the fact that a miracle has happened. They'll blame it on Satan. But Jesus' miracles were so self-authenticatingly clear, no one tried that course of action. And so what he says is this. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. 
Yes, 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 this is a wonderful thing. It's very notable, very remarkable. But surely you could have come on one of the other six days. She's been bent over for 18 years. I mean, really, what's one more day? Right? Stop and think about 18 years with an affliction. I talked to Phil Hopper this morning. He's had eight years of his hives. And we know what a burden, what a discouragement, how heavy that can feel. He's halfway there to this woman. 18 years of being unable to stand up. 18 years of having people whispering about, I wonder what she did to deserve that. 18 years. And what this synagogue ruler gets from that is not, after 18 years, of course, the first available opportunity, surely she can wait another day. Not the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath. He answers Jesus by rebuking the people. Okay, how does the Lord respond to that? He's indignant, he's angry, he rebukes the man. The Lord rebukes their hypocrisy. And notice Luke's shift of term in verse 15. He's no longer Jesus, he's the Lord. This guy's just had the audacity to challenge Jesus. And Luke begins Jesus' response by reminding us, the reader, this is the Lord who has been so challenged. And this is the Lord who responds, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead the way to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He exposes their hypocrisy. He exposes their hypocrisy. Notice the plural. He's not you hypocrite. He's not just responding to the synagogue ruler. You hypocrites. And that is because even though the synagogue ruler speaks... We know down in verse 17, there are adversaries, plural. Presumably, some of the more religious people in the synagogue are nodding. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Preach it. Presumably, there are adversaries present. This man speaks. And so Jesus doesn't just attack the synagogue leader. All of those of his ilk, of his opinion, of his mindset. And if we have this sort of legalistic attitude, he's rebuking us. He's rebuking the synagogue leader and everyone who stands with him. Everyone who stands with him. You hypocrites. Now, this is the central charge he levied at the Pharisees. Remember back in chapter 12, verse 1? He warned his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's wearing the religious mask, looking holy, looking godly, checking the boxes, keeping the rules, and inwardly, being full of dead man's bones, hating God, hating others, ignoring mercy and kindness. This man who runs the local house of the law and instruction may look godly, he may appear righteous, he is a hypocrite. And all those who agree with him, they're hypocrites too. Why? Jesus' argument follows along two lines. Even though the the ruler of the synagogue did not quote the scripture, notice he doesn't even quote the scripture. It's not like, well, Jesus, this is what's written. He's mainly appealing to their traditions. He at least references it some ways. Because as I read in in Deuteronomy 5, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now that's what he's referencing when he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. So Jesus first responds to his textual argument. Is this or is this not a violation of the Sabbath? Let's first deal with that and get that out of the way. 
And Jesus' response is brilliant, and it demonstrates his command of God's word. Because he says to him, which one of you on the Sabbath does not untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead of the way to water? And uh, what's the connection? Well, the Sabbath command, is, as we read and heard earlier, doesn't just apply to people. No, no. Six days you shall work and do all your labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey. Interesting. Jesus, if we're going to talk about the Sabbath, it doesn't just apply to people. It applies to animals, doesn't it? Now, let me ask you this. Do, do you untie, do you loose, literally release your animal on the Sabbath? Do you do that work? And do you lead your animal in the sin of walking to the trough to get water? Do you encourage it to do that work? Of course they did. I mean, it's not life-threatening. It can wait another day. No animal is going to die of dehydration in 24 hours. It's not critical. No, they did that. They made allowances for that because we want to take care of our stuff, don't we? <laughs> they do not consider it work to release their animals. That, that they got an exception for. And I think they're right. I don't think that is work. I mean, what is taking a piece of rope and unwrapping it from the post, walking 15 feet over there and getting the animal some water? It's kindness to an animal. But they're hypocrites because they got this double standard. Somehow, Jesus, in saying, woman, you are released, somehow Jesus, in putting his hands on her, has done more work than they do when they untie their animal. It doesn't make any sense. He's a hypocrite. He's self-condemned. If an animal, how much more a daughter of Abraham? If one who's only been bound for a few hours, how much more one who's been bound for 18 years? You'll loose your animal from a few hours bondage tied to a post. Someone's been bound for 18 years. If you could lose the bonds of an animal on the Sabbath, how much more is it necessary for God to lose this woman's bonds on the Sabbath? But secondly, Jesus responds along the lines of the argument of the synagogue ruler of what ought to be done. Because that's what he's applying. He's not even directly quoting the text. He's more applying what's appropriate, what's fitting, what ought to be done. You ought to be working on six days of the week. Come on one of those days. So Jesus is going to respond with what ought to be done likewise. Verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And here's, here's Jesus, what he's doing here is he's explaining the purpose of the Sabbath. This daughter of Abraham is far more deserving of release than an animal. That's the point. The daughter of Abraham is far more deserving of release than an animal. The animal is only tied up for an afternoon or a morning. She's been bound for 18 years. The animal is not made in the likeness of God. This woman is not only made in the likeness of God. Jesus gives on her the title, daughter of Abraham. Well, two things there. One, we know the Pharisees prided themselves on being children of Abraham. You remember back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist rebuked them? You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now they prided themselves in being sons of Abraham. But I'm guessing they didn't afford her that honor, that dignity. 
Jesus is reminding this. This woman is the daughter of Abraham too. She's a recipient of the promise. And back in chapter one, when John the Baptist's father prophesied over his son about what Jesus would come and do, we were reminded that in sending Jesus, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he has granted to us that we being delivered or loosed from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. It's fitting that this daughter of Abraham who has more value and more dignity is more precious in God's sight than a donkey. And that you, this synagogue ruler can have more compassion for his own animals, because of course they're his, it's his stuff, than he does for this poor woman. Then Jesus explains the purpose of the Sabbath. That's the, that's the reasoning along the second lines, the oughtedness, picking that up. Synagogue ruler ought, is necessary for work to be done six days, come on one of those days. Jesus explains the purpose of the Sabbath. He's got it all wrong. First, the Sabbath is God's good gift of rest to men. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was God's good and kind purpose to say, look, no, seriously, stop working one day in seven. And not just you, your animals, your servants, your children. I'm giving you the gift of rest. Relax. Catch your breath. Unwind. Just as God rested from his work, so I give you rest and every week you will, you will rest and you'll think of me. That's, that's the line of argumentation Jesus used back in chapter 6 with the man with a withered hand. Is it, is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath, to help or to hurt on the Sabbath? Here, the, the point ties up in, if Jesus has come, and this, this bounces again off of the quotation of Isaiah. Remember, it was on a Sabbath day in his hometown, in a synagogue, when Jesus read Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And all were marveling at the gracious words coming off his lips. And he said, today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. What does that mean? That means Jesus, back in chapter 4, said, today, Sabbath day, I'm setting people free. Today, Sabbath day, I'm announcing liberty to captives. Today, Sabbath day, I'm at work as the Messiah. So is it fitting then for God's redemptive purpose, for God's redemptive agent to carry out that redemption on the day God set aside to give rest to his people? Of course it is. Of course it is. Because the Sabbath ultimately point to is the picture of the true rest God offers. And this is part of the significance of this being cast by Luke, revealing that it's Satan himself who's oppressed her. As much as it's a physical condition and a physical weakness and infirmity, it is a spiritual issue. The kingdom of darkness has been oppressing the daughter of Abraham. And God's savior, God's deliverer has come and he frees her from that oppression. What better day to give her rest from her affliction? from Satan himself, than on the Sabbath. What better picture could there be of the Sabbath that is to come for God's people, the rest that he will give us in Christ from working for God, from our sins? Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, 8 through 11. The author of Hebrews showing us, telling us that the, the Sabbath itself pointed to a greater rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, he's quoting Psalm 95, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest to the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. What does Jesus do? He comes to an undeserving woman, a woman who's given no merit in the text, no particular reason why God ought to be kind and gracious to, except that it's his heart to be merciful, it's his heart to have pity. He sees her and he just responds, and he freely, without charging, delivers her from her spiritual oppression, gives her rest on the Sabbath. Is that fitting for God's Messiah? Ought that to be done? I think so. This daughter of Abraham, the recipient of the promises of God, who God said, I will give, send a seed, and he will bless you and make you a blessing. And here, the seed of the woman, seed of David, is present. This daughter of Abraham receives some small foretaste of those promises. No, it is fitting. This man is a hypocrite. He stands condemned by his own actions. And as Jesus explains the true purpose and meaning of the Sabbath, the Lord has silenced him, refuted him, rebuked him. Which then leads us to the conclusion. The synagogue is divided. The synagogue is divided. We read about two responses. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced. All the glorious things were being done by him. Jesus came to divide men, to sift the wheat from the chaff. John the Baptist, to burn the chaff with unquenching fire, gather his wheat into a storehouse. And Jesus said earlier how he came to divide a household back at the end of chapter 12, set a father against son, mother against daughter. Jesus announced, I came to set fire to the earth and would that it were kindled for judgment I have come. And here, that type of response happens. Because ultimately when we understand what Jesus is saying and what he is about and what his diagnosis of our condition is, he will either offend us and we will oppose him, or we will rejoice and delight in him. Those are the two responses. There are those who are put to shame. They attempted to shame him. This woman who has experienced shame is released from shame, and it turns back on them, and they are the ones now steeped in shame. It's a similar response also if you turn back to chapter 7. At the end of uh, Jesus' vindication of John the Baptist, John chapter 7, and in verses 22 and 23, Jesus points to his miracles and his signs as those things that identify who he is, and we having read that in this passage, because yes, yes, this is again, we're seeing the one who releases captives, the one who gives sight to the blind, the one who pronounces good news to the poor. Chapter 7, verse 29 Um, I'm in chapter 8, verse 29. Hold on. There we go. Um, When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized in the baptism of John. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. There's that division. And it's that same division for us. 
How will we respond to God's Messiah? We have to take him on his terms, not our own. He doesn't play ball with our preconceptions. He smashes them. Just like he smashed their traditional understanding of the Sabbath. Broke it. Will the synagogue leader receive him as the Lord who has the right to interpret God's Torah? Who has the right as the Lord of the Sabbath to say, this is what God meant, this is what it is for, or not? Because make no mistake, Jesus will smash some of your preconceptions and some of your understandings of what's good and right. He'll smash them. And he'll say, submit to me, I'm the Lord. I, I tell you how it is. And we, in response, say we, we want to faithfully think his thoughts after him. We want to conform our mind to Scripture. We say, okay, if Jesus says that's good, that's good. If Jesus says we ought not to do that, we ought not to do it. He's the Lord. Or we cling to our traditions, we cling to our self-righteousness, and we're offended by him. It'll always be that case. I mean, always be that way. The kingdom of God is triumphing over the kingdom of Satan. And the Lord silences his accusers. Israel has learned nothing. The vine is not bearing any better fruit. Now, the story's not over yet, but Israel's time is drawing near. Just look at the end of chapter 13 where we're heading in a few weeks. Verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way tomorrow, today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They did not get an unlimited time to repent. They did not get an unlimited time to bear fruit. They got one more year. And that announcement of judgment is done. It's done. And we likewise are given a season, a time to respond. Today is the favorable day. Today is the day of salvation. We, and you're sitting here and you're hearing God's word. Don't harden your heart to it. And don't tell yourself, another day I'll listen and another day I'll follow. Who knows how much time before the ax cuts down the root. Let's, let's just close in prayer, worshiping our God and praying that God would guard us from being the synagogue ruler. He's so ugly in the text and it's so easy for us to slip into our traditions, our expectations, the way we want things done. Instead of praising and glorifying God for what he's doing in others and in other places, we, that's not the way we do it. That can't be a good church. They don't wear suits to church or any other number of other traditions of men that might cause us to look down on people. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we have such a fierce and courageous Messiah and yet so tender and full of compassion. He does not flinch to take on the entire Jewish leadership and nation. He does not flinch to rebuke and silence them. Yet he calls a poor crippled woman to him. And he heals her. And he touches her with kindness. And he vindicates her in the front of the community. And he defends her. We have the lion and the lamb as our savior. So Lord... Help us to love Jesus more. Help us to have his heart, to see people with kindness and not glance over them. 
Help us to have your heart after you and protect us from clinging to our own traditions and our own preconceptions and condemning the just, not rejoicing in your work because it doesn't fit what we'd expect. Let the Lord be Lord. Let us be his servants. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.